What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 184 of Misfits and Rejects. Today's episode, I spoke with Stuart Townsend from channelasaservice.com. Stuart helps businesses, SaaS companies to be specific, which is software as a service, increase sales by building indirect sales channels, something that I wasn't familiar with. Stuart does a great job of explaining what that means, how he got into it, and how hopefully you can start thinking about your skill set in whatever you're really good at and possibly take it online. Become a location-independent digital nomad, a traveler, somebody who maybe finds themselves jobless right now, but with a really transferable skill set into the online space that you can start your own business, you can grow your own business, and maybe achieve something that you had never thought possible before. If you're a first-time listener, please pull up that phone and hit the subscribe button on whatever you're listening to this podcast on. If you like it and you want to share this story with a friend of yours, Stuart and I would be greatly appreciative of that. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it also in one of two ways. You can either head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop, pick up a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, or you can head over to patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects and provide a monthly donation. It's all appreciated. Nothing is expected. I hope wherever you're listening to this episode, you find yourselves happy, healthy, motivated, and tremendously inspired by Stuart's story. So with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Stuart Townsend from channelasaservice.com. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Stuart Townsend from channelasaservice.com. Stuart, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me uh, on, your, on your bright and breezy morning with my late evening yeah, dude, I've been doing quite a lot of these, and I'm getting a lot of uh, people in Malaysia, Thailand, the UK as well. Um, but it does seem to work out, even with these huge time differences. Like we're always able to figure it out and have some nice conversations. It's um, yeah, your evening there, and you said you got some sun today. You live on a farm in what was it outside of Manchester? Yeah, so I'm in the middle of England near the Lake District uh, on a little farm no people around just some sheep and some little lambs it's lambing season so and it's glorious weather as well which makes a nice change for england i'll bet i mean are you somebody who does appreciate the weather there and kind of gets over too much sun or are you somebody who wants to reside <laughs> only in sun <laughs> um, i'm a little bit red already and i've only been outside for about an hour today so yeah i do like when the sun's here i'll go for a walk i won't put suntan cream on and then i'll, I'll pay for it the day after but it's, it's definitely it's definitely worth that pain um considering we, we probably have about four or five months of rain and winter time is horrible <laughs> oh yeah i mean i've only spent a few weeks maybe no actually a month or so in england and um, yeah, I really can't do it, dude. Like the, the dreary weather, even though I know you do have months of decent weather, like it just, it's too much for me. How do you do in Thailand? Cause we, we cross paths in Thailand, yeah, which is a very yeah. hot, sunny place. Do you find yourself attracted to that type of environment? Uh, no, I do. I, I mean, I like Thailand, um, sunshine wise. It's great. It's just that humidity at the nighttime. It just hurts, doesn't it? It's just like ugh, horrible. Um, 
but yeah, I've tra- I mean, I've traveled quite a bit with work and sort of life in general and such, but you know, one of my favorite places, I think just for weather, people, location is um, Japan. I love Japan. My God, if I could have got a job and lived in Japan, that would have been my favorite place ever. It was just an, an amazing country. What do you like so much about it? I think it was just the honesty of the people. I just, it took me, uh, I travel around for about a month going to different places, sort of mountains, villages, obviously around Tokyo and, and such. And it was just the honesty of the people and just, you know, you could leave your laptop on a table and it wouldn't get stolen and people were really um, friendly. And ironically, um, traveling on a train, I went to go and visit Hiroshima, which is a, a really moving experience. Um, got the bullet train. It was about 10 o'clock at night came out not quite sure where the hotel was and i'm six foot one six foot two and so quite a tall chap and this lady could see that i was a little bit confused um and came came across and said are you lost what's going on i'm like yeah i know i'm in the right place but my hotel i can't work out where it is and literally she walked me to the hotel took me in spoke to the concierge made sure i was checked in okay and and said are you all right now i'm like i'm i'm brilliant thank you i mean i cannot imagine that happening in london <laughs> at any time of the day or night sort of thing at 10 o'clock at night it's dark um it's just yeah just one of those nice places certain places you sort of get a feel for don't you but yeah i just love japan it was uh definitely one one place i'm going to visit again in the next sort of five years or so is uh is going to spend a little bit more time there yeah, I love those stories. I haven't been to Japan myself, but I have countless stories of similar experiences, you know, being in places that at times are even uncomfortable being in because the area is a little bit shady seeming. But then all of a sudden somebody turns up who's just nice as can be, takes me by the hand and puts me right where I need to be. And I think I think the world has more nice people in it than people who want to harm you. That's for sure. Yeah, most definitely. I think as long as you're aware of where you are and you surround and stuff, but I think there's more more positivity in the world than than is reflected in the news. Obviously, the news is more about let's talk about negative things because that that's what sells news. Oh, it's so painful. I don't know what the news is like in the UK, but I definitely can see a huge contrast when I'm out in the world. And although I can't understand their news most of the time, but you know, I can feel the vibe of the people and the culture and. Um, then coming back to the States and feeling the vibe of the people based on the news. It's just like the amount of fear that's put into the hearts of Americans of the outside world is crazy to me. Like people are telling me that like what I, where I just came from is so dangerous. They can't believe I went. And it's like, Oh, I, just, I was there. It was so nice. Like people are so friendly. Yeah. I, I always sort of have a little snicker to myself when I'm in the U S and I watch the news. And I'm just like, is is this, is this real? Is it, or is this fake TV? Am I watching a TV show? Like, it's just hilarious. Cause they portray the outside world as, I don't know what, just something totally different. It's quite alien. And then obviously, um, you know, you speak to Americans that travel and, and they get it. It's like, no, the outside world's amazing. There's loads of stuff going on. Just don't watch the news. The news is, is bizarre. Um, yeah, it's is, media control, though, isn't it? Yeah, dude. What is the news saying right now? I don't want to jump on the whole COVID uh, conversation too much, but I'd like to hear just a little bit about how the news is portraying COVID in the UK, and is it kind of trending down as far as cases? Like, is it starting? Is, is the curve starting to flatten out, as they're saying all over the news in America right now? Uh, not yet, no, but it's getting close. Um, you're seeing sort of the acceleration of, an increase in people that are passing um but it's now starting to come under control but we've probably got another two or three weeks yet of 
use the term lockdown, but you can still go for a walk. You can still go to the supermarkets, but the economy is is definitely feeling that pain. Um, the UK government, thankfully, has stepped in to help a lot with, um, you know, payments and keeping salaries and p- keeping people employed and, you know, lots of money in, in that. But there's still grey areas where people can't get support um, around it. But it's pretty much about... I call it sort of wartime news. It's about let's come together, let's all get through this, let's do as much as we can to get through this. But let's let's see what happens when we come out the other side, because that's when all the debt's going to be incurred and you know the government's going to want the money back and all that sort of thing. So let's let's see what happens when we come out of it. Um but yeah, it's more of a um, bravado. It's like Captain Tom, you know, this hundred year old chap that's doing laps in his in his not his wheelchair and his in his support and he's raised about thirteen million pounds for um you know the nhs our public health system it's just little things like that that just go yeah there's there's some nice stuff happening around there and it is you know this is a time when everybody needs to support each other and be together and and you know the news is sort of portraying and supporting that rather than try to portray a lot of the negative sides that are happening Mm -hmm. just real quick the reference you made of captain tom in the wheelchair he's a real person Oh yeah, yeah. No, go on Twitter. He's he's all over the place. He's a hundred year old war veteran. Um, I think it was a hundred today, and he's doing laps of where he lives and raising money. And uh, the majority of the money has come from outside of the UK, but it's it's thirteen million as of today. He only wanted to raise a hundred thousand pounds, and this is over the last uh, week he's been doing this. Jesus Just, Christ! Yeah. He made thirteen million in a week. Yeah, it is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Um, some of the stories like that in his wheelchair around the, around yeah. the block. Yeah, it's not. It's not in a wheelchair. I'm trying to think. It's like a leg support. Um, oh, I can't think of the term. He's like walking. A walker. Yeah, he's a walker. That's it. A walker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's got a walker support. Um, because he's 100 years old and a war veteran, you know, he's, he's out there doing it, and he's like, I'm, you know, I'm doing this to try and help support everything. It's just caught the attention. It's just amazing. But literally 13 million. It's just so impressive. Yeah. It's, it, and that's the generosity of people. Cause like I say, a lot of that money hasn't come from UK. It's come from outside. It's come from the U S it's come from other countries that have been donating to him. Uh, and it's not to him. It's, it's to our public health system. So yeah. Awesome. It is cool. Um, one more thing I'd like to learn a little bit more about the UK. Cause I've heard little snippets of rumors from friends. Like, I mean, obviously, a lot of people know you're like the most heavily have the most heavily surveillance. You're the most heavily surveillance country in the world with like all your CCTV kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. like, what's up with this stuff I'm hearing about people getting tracked with their phones to make sure that they're staying in quarantine? Um, I mean, I'm assuming they're probably doing it in the states, and we don't know it yet. But like, is that really uh, happening? No. Um, I mean, if it is it must be happening in very isolated cases. Um, there's been obviously been discussion around surveillance and, and bringing out apps similar to Korea, you know, the, the application that had applications really early on to track people and do that sort of aspect. Um, it's not happening in the UK, not as far as I've, I've not, I've not seen anything around that in terms of where we are now in lockdown. Um, you can go out in your car, you can go for a drive, you can stay local to where you are, but don't go to the beach and don't do things like that. And and if you do and you get caught, you're not getting arrested or penalised. It's just like, don't be so stupid. Please go back home uh, and stay safe. So, you know, it's 
that th- there's no cases that I've heard of where people have been traced by their mobile activity to then go and hunt them down and say, right, okay, you're, you're breaking curfew. Because we're not in lockdown like South Africa where they've been inside for three three weeks now. Yeah, they're coming into their fourth week and, and they are not allowed out. They can go to the shops and it's only one family member and they can only go X amount of times and, and such. Um, so, yeah, so that's... Yeah, I'm not seeing that. I've not heard that. And definitely speaking to everybody sort of quite closely and, and nobody else has mentioned that either. Interesting. Okay. Cause yeah, they, my friends that were mentioning to me were pretty convinced that's real news. So I'm always trying to pick, you know, pick apart their stories and get, you know, yeah. other people's perspectives. Interesting. De- um, definitely right know? on the CCTV though. <laughs> yeah. We do have a lot of CCTV. My God, you were monitored everywhere you go without realizing it. Um, and it's sort of just taken as a given now it's there to protect you and you don't think about it. And how do you feel about that though? Are you okay with it? Uh, I suppose. Yeah. Cause it's just in the background. Um, one of my friends when he was younger, uh, got quite severely beaten up coming out of the pub around 10, 11 o'clock at night, about five chaps jumped him. He ended up with a metal plate in his head, uh, broke his nose, fractured his jaw. You know, he was wired up for about a year um now if there would have been cctv there at the time and would have captured it they would have caught them or they could have stopped that so though you know it helps with those sort of things um around that but again it's it's that balance of i was on a call earlier and somebody came out with a great statement that i can't remember but it's that balance of feeling safe and secure but giving up some of your rights and your privacy that, that sort of thing so yeah as long you know for me it's like as long as it's in in town centers or it's where it's valid it's when you've got CCTV in public toilets or somewhere where it shouldn't be, where there should be privacy. That's, that's when I would have an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you there. I mean, obviously being American, everyone gets all up in arms when we start hearing about people being, you know, constantly surveilled, if that's even a word. Yeah. And, uh, but the reality is, is, I mean, we've been, you know, Snowden was nice enough to include <laughs> the yeah. fact that we've been watched for a long time, dude. Yeah. I, uh, um, I was going to say just apologies. Sorry, I used to work at um, some microsystems a long time ago, and you know, part of some of the work that we were doing there was with the MOD and sort of the US military um, when I was working at DataSift. So, uh, you know, there's always been activities around us being surveilled, uh, surveyed, and, and looked at and invaded, but we just don't know about it. But thanks to Snowden, yeah, we <laughs> we know a little bit more now. The sort of general public are a bit more aware of it, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Tell us a little bit about what you do. Cause as we talked pre-show, I'm not the, I don't know much about SaaS and, and as you talk about you, you help SaaS companies, uh, develop sales connections. Like, can you just tell us a little bit more about what you do? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And how you got uh, into it, please. Yeah. 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 So for those that aren't aware, SaaS stands for software as a service and it's basic form is just think of, um, Microsoft um, email, Office 365, or Google email, or Google Cloud. It's basically a piece of software that's delivered to you through a browser um, that you use um, generally. So it could be Xero for accountants uh, instead of like Sage, which was like an on-premise type product. So those type 
types of companies over the last 10, 15 years um, have just become more prevailing. But what used to happen in my old life was we'd go and sell software that was called on-premise. So you had a server, you bought a license, you used it, you had a CD-ROM, for those that can remember it, <laughs> and you installed it. Whereas SaaS now is delivered through a browser, it's always up, you know, it's updated, you're not aware of it. So it's, it's a remotely delivered service that you normally pay on a monthly subscription. So if you roll it back into something that's more sort of um, commercialized, think of it as Netflix. Netflix is a SaaS-based delivery service. You pay for it monthly, you get your films, it's great disney plus SaaS space so that's that's what it is what i i do and what i've done for longer than i'd like to say which is probably about 20 years uh, or more is work with companies who um sell their products um, directly so think of netflix again so they're selling to you as a consumer or think of zero they're selling um to you to do your accounts um they have a direct sales team and they go and sell this, these products and they make phone calls and it goes through a standard sort of sales cycle. Um, I work with those types of companies to help them sell their products through what we call indirect sales or channel. So rather than having all these direct sales people on payroll, you go and find another company that will sell your product and get their salespeople to go out and sell it. So they're still selling your product um, whilst you're asleep is is the basic premise and how that operates is just think again sort of microsoft office 365 or google email those types of products you have to buy direct for them um through you know go in your browser sign up for office 365 or if you're a larger business and you need hundreds of licenses you would go through one of their partner channels so you'd speak to one of their partners and they'd sell that service to you and some other pieces as well so i build these indirect sales models these third parties that go out and sell these SaaS services and and the reason we do that and the reason well the reason i do that and the reason those companies do it is one to reduce their to accelerate their their revenue opportunity so they can scale really quickly and um, reduce their headcount in terms of how many salespeople they need to hire because you know if you're selling through a channel they've got 10 salespeople and you've got one partner manager managing 10 of them you've got 100 salespeople you don't have to hire 100 salespeople then because you've got the, these guys out selling for you. Um, and that's the basic sort of crux of it. There's more to it than that, but essentially it's selling a piece of software through another party um, to the end customer. So it's it's called indirect because it's not going through your own sales team um, around that. And how did I get into it? Whew. <laughs> that's quite an interesting one. So I'm a little bit, older than 40 but maybe less than 50 so i've been around a little bit um and i started my sales career selling steel of all things so cold roll steel so basically um not bars or angles but plates of steel so the sort of things you'd see fabricated on a roof or you if you're looking at air ducting vents they're made, made out of steel that have been fabricated um i decided that was great when I was 18, but when I got into my 20s and I, I, um, I got married and was having my little boy and such, that it wasn't really going to scale from a sort of salary aspect. I was going to be fixed, and it wasn't that exciting. It just used to bore me, uh, to be honest. I got a bit frustrated. So I went to university part-time. Um, I did a, a degree. Uh, oh, no, I did two degrees, actually. I did two degrees and a master's part-time um, at Salford University, 
and from that I managed to get a job in IT just as the market was was crashing so uh, I mentioned earlier I, I worked at some microsystems so I started there in 2001 as a graduate um, and I was a mature graduate. Everybody else was like 20 straight out of university. I'd come out of part-time university. I was doing the, the same hours at night, but still working. And then started there. And literally when when I started, the, the market in IT was starting to crash. Then we hit 2008 and got even more painful. Um, so I worked my way through there, um, started as a uh, pre-sales consultant. So helping salespeople with technical issues and sort of helping them with sales. And then I moved on to start working with the channel. And then I went through a phase where um, suddenly I identified it was missing on selling to the likes of Google or Facebook or Amazon. Um, at the time, you've got to think this was 2008 when these companies were not as large as they were, but were, were growing aggressively. Um, and we weren't selling them our operating system or our software or our storage. So I set up a program for startups so that we could go and find the next ones. Um, so one, one you may have heard of is Spotify. So the first sale that I did was selling storage to Spotify for, for them when they got the first round ready to get raised and such. And that was a really exciting time. Um, I learned loads around that and then I decided to sort of go on from there. But that's that's literally where I started, a, an old Unix-based company that, depending on the age of your audience and sort of as such, probably won't have heard of it. They've heard of Java. Um, that's that's the legacy. That company doesn't exist anymore, which is sad. Um, but, yeah, that was exciting times, and that's how I went from selling steel into an IT career and working with these third-party type vendors, distributors, and resellers are, are some of the terms that I'll, I'll use. And essentially, they're just third parties that sell software on your behalf. It's very interesting. Dude, can you go back and just define what a microsystem is? Like, what's what a microsystem? Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. So, some microsystems was a company that was formed by three chaps. Um, and if you've heard of Unix, <clears throat> well, if you've heard of Linux, Linux is a der derivative of Unix, an operating system. Sun invented a chipset called Spark and a Unix operating system. You won't see any of that, but even now, if you when you go to the bank or um, your your mobile phone bill, probably that will be transacted on some Sun hardware. Uh, and some Sun's uh, Unix operating system, Solaris. You just don't see it. So we were the type of provider that would pro sell high-end, um, high high-volume back-end systems to big banks, you know, global brands. But uh, as a consumer, you would never see it. You wouldn't even have a clue that we existed. Um, the, the funniest story – sorry, not the funniest story, but the funniest aspect is – in the UK, we have a, a newspaper that's still going now called The Sun. Um, it was famous for basically tacky news and its pay three model, and it you know it, it wasn't it wasn't the times by any means. So whenever I used to say I worked at Sun, people would think I worked for the Sun newspaper, and it's like, no, I work for an IT company. <laughs> And it's like, oh, so what do you do at Sunday? Are, are you a reporter? Are you no, I, I work in an IT company. So, um, but yeah, yeah, essentially that company was bought by another large corporate called Oracle in 2010. Um, so yeah, so some microsystem doesn't exist anymore, but some of its legacy does. But that's that's basically where I cut my teeth. And in terms of a company, 
it's the one company I would have stayed for for life um, because you could do that there. You could reinvent yourself. You could learn so much and, and do great things. It was just a good company to work for. It was lovely. Interesting. So, like, do you understand the, the stuff, the products that you're selling, like the, how the inner workings of them go, like the IT side of it? Or are you, like, just all-out sales guy? Uh, no. Um, I started in a pre-sales role. So what that was is I, end, I had to understand if a sales guy was selling something, would it work? So <laughs> being on both sides of the fence, a sales guy will sell you whatever he wants to sell to make the money and and hope for the best. Um, it was my job there to make sure that if A was sold with B, if it plugged together, would it solve the customer's problem? So, yeah, so I'm a trained Solaris admin, uh, network administrator, so I understand the technology as well, or I did, not as much now. Um, what I understand now is more of the sort of no-code, low-code type movement, which is, you know, technology that you can use without having to be a geek or a developer, which is awesome for me. Um, but, yeah, I fully understood that. I would go and um, work with large corporate banks, talk to them about their mainframe architecture and do loads of stuff that if I look back now, I'll be like, I don't know how I did that because it was all pretty complex. <laughs> my, mm-hmm. my my brain definitely wouldn't be able to take that amount of information in now. Um, but yeah, yeah, man. yeah. What, what would you say makes a good salesperson? I've asked this to another guest before and I was interested in your thoughts on it. Um, I think we're all a little bit different. So you, you have different genres of salesperson, but for me, it's about trust and honesty. If you get the trust, trust and respect of your client uh, in terms of what you're selling to them and pos- positioning that correctly, that it does solve their pain point. It's not about the cost. I think it's a, around that trust and honesty and that you'll deliver against that. It's like any human interaction, isn't it? Um, you know, the price your price may be a little bit more, it may be less, whatever it may be, but if you can be truthful and honest that you'll deliver what you said you're going to deliver and once it is delivered that you'll help support them afterwards and make sure that it's correct. I think that's that's the best way to be because you're, you're that face, that brand of whoever you're working for, whether it's yourself or whether it's Oracle or you know Microsoft or whoever it may be. Um, that's what you always have to think Um well, on the first day that started at some microsystems, it was basically always be truthful and honest. If you make a mistake, learn from it, but just tell us. And every, everything else can be forgiven. Um, don't hide anything. Not not to the company and, and definitely not to customers. And that's always really stuck with me. Mm, yeah, it sounds like a great company. What do you think makes you so special and, and gifted at what you do? Um. <clears throat> Say special, special and gifted makes me feel uh, like Superman. <laughs> Thank you. Um, again, I think it just comes back to what I do to me is like common sense because it, it's what I do and I get it. And I think it's just talking to people about that and taking them through that journey, helping them understand it um, around that and being there to answer any questions that they may think are they feel is a little bit stupid i spend a lot of my time talking to SaaS founders that are in late 20s early 30s you know they've probably just got a raise of about a million dollars or so looking to scale the company and and are in a position where you know they feel they should know everything and they don't but they don't want to expose that so i try and sort of nurture that out and, and explain to them that not everybody knows everything and you know it's only with age you get that and such blah 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 but just more about listening to them more taking on board what they're saying 
um, and then help and guide and advise them through. I think, you know, the core of any sort of relationship that you build is is having those listening skills. Um, you know, without those nowadays, a lot of people just over-talk over people or are not listening to what they're saying. They're listening, but they're not taking it on board. Um, so I, I like to pause, listen, reflect upon it, and then give guidance that's relevant to that, not just here's what I think and it should be how I think and that's the way the world operates because that's not helping anybody. No, yeah, of course. Do you have people like beating down your door or are you constantly going out and trying to sell yourself and get new contracts? Uh, if we would have said that about, if we would have had this call about two weeks ago, <laughs> it would have been a different picture. Um, I had too much work on. Um, but obviously now with the impact, the first thing that goes in the organization, especially with Furlong, is is contractors. Um, so at the moment, I'm just looking, uh, going back out and sort of reinventing myself in a sense and, and pushing myself out there. Um, two or three weeks ago, I, 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 I turned down two pieces of two, two new contracts um, because of the fact that I had work and, and I had contracts that I had to honor to deliver against. So, um, but you know, it's karma. The world, the world will come back and it'll all be good um, around that. But yeah, it tends to be that the work that I get uh, is through word of mouth or referrals. So it's people that I know or have worked with that uh, refer it to somebody else. And it comes to me rather, I don't have, any aggressive marketing or LinkedIn outreach or do anything like that at all. It's, um, it's not the sort of, it's not my style. Hmm. How many times have you had to reinvent yourself throughout your life and how do you do it? I mean, I, this is a, this is a conversation I've been having with like entrepreneur coaches like Henry Doss, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting here going like, what the fuck dude? Like, I don't know where to do what, what to do next and how to stay motivated, you know, like to and get focused and refocused. And it's like, how, how have you done it? Yeah. It's interesting. I had a conversation with Henry the other day as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting around that, but yeah, for me. So if, if I think of my sort of career path, uh, I wash car when I was 14, I got a job at garage and I washed cars and I set up my own little mini valeting business on the side, even though I couldn't drive cars. Um, I then left that when I was 18 to go and work at a steel firm and sell steel. When I was 30, I got a job and I, I went to university, put myself through that because in the UK, you couldn't get a corporate job unless you had a university degree. That degree didn't have to be in IT. It could have been in media studies about Coronation Street or whatever. Um, and then when I was uh, at Sun, I reinvented myself in roles. So I was pre-sales, I was business development, and I did the startup and accelerator program, and then I went to Oracle. Um, I think the challenge is, well, I, don't, I suppose it depends on on your outlook. For me, I get bored. Uh, I'll, I'll do a role, and I'll do it for two or three years, and then the challenge, I like the sort of initial setup process, the buzz, the excitement, getting things moving. When it becomes day-to-day -day business, and there's a playbook or you've just got to turn up and press buttons and it's the same buttons every day, I get totally bored. So that's the motivation for me. It's like I, I can tell when I'm itching that I need to go and reinvent myself or go and look for a different role or do something differently. So, uh, And that was, that was nurtured inside the companies I've worked for. When I exited those and I went to work for startup companies, that was a whole different thing because literally I was working for a company called DataSift. We just took a large investment. There's 25 people there. I was only sales and marketing person and then doing hiring. Um, 
had to reinvent myself every day because I was making the developers coffee, trying to hire people, doing pre-sales consulting, doing sales. I was doing every role under the sun, and that that taught me what hard work was. It was amazing, um, really exciting times around that. But yeah, I think you know the motivation is dependent on who you are and how you are motivated. For me, but it it's the challenge. Um, I need that challenge, and once that challenge is gone, and like I say, it becomes day to day business as i term it um you've lost me i'm like and and that's part of sort of why i, I can't i couldn't stay in a big sort of corporate job um too long because once once it gets into that place i'm i'm itchy that's why i like what i do now i can sort of drop in get my my hit of of the challenge and setting things and getting things in motion and then exit out and go right okay you, you can go and go and carry on and then look for the next one mm-hmm what does hard work mean to you? Can you define it? Because obviously we hear all these gurus talking about you got to work harder like Gary Vee. Just fucking work harder, work harder, 14-hour <laughs> days. And it's like, dude, like in the places I've traveled, like there's people who work way fucking harder than Gary Vee. Yeah. They're never, ever going to have the opportunities that Gary Vee has, one, either created for himself or gotten lucky to fall into. You know? So it's like, what does hard work mean to you? Yeah, for me it was um, – so basically I spent – 12, 13 years in a large corporate, a large US corporate. Um, and then a mutual company where there's only 25 people would got this money, the investors inspected and payback. So yeah, it was long hours. It was, I was away from home five days a week. I was doing 12 hour days or more. I was doing calls with Japan at weird times and such. And, and that's not hard physically. I think it's, it's the mental capacity mm. because I was, I was used to doing what I was doing well. Suddenly I was having to do five or 10 roles or, you know, some, something like that and, and cross functional such. And it was just, my brain was just tired. <laughs> that to me was hard work. Whereas my brother, who's a bit older than me, hard work to, to him or it was, is he was a brickie. So he would get up at six o'clock in the morning, be on site by seven and lay hundreds of bricks every day. And if I tried to do that, I mean, I tried to cut the grass the other day. <laughs> that, that nearly broke me. So it's it's that mental aspect. And I think, again, you know, that that to me was the hardest work that I've ever done in my life those three years. And and it reflected, but it set me up well in terms of what I knew and skill set. So it was an invested time that definitely paid back. Um, but, yeah, I'd, uh, there's definitely people out there that would say that work harder than I do for less and and get less you know respect and less payback for it as well Mm -hmm. no thank you for that I really you articulated that nicely and I can I can feel that internally like that mental strain of just being exhausted but then having to jump on a call because the time difference with Japan and having to be on point and articulate you know whatever you're trying to sell is equally as difficult as you know shoveling sand for maybe you know 14 hours a day i guess yeah i mean i don't know but um you kind of alluded pre-call that you grew up in a pretty poor environment i mean you talked about having an outhouse and like can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and maybe how that has played into where you are today yeah of course yeah yeah so um i suppose when i say poor it's more middle class poor but but doing okay but my mum and dad when they met um god did the I think my mum was 16, my dad was 17, and they, they met really young, and then my brother and my sister before me. I was sort of a late addition. Um, but uh, initially they lived in a caravan, 
for a couple of years and then managed to get a, a little house and stuff um, and make the way through it. And again, from hard work, my dad got a job um, at Granada Studios, which is a, a, t- a television company in the UK and did well from there. But yeah, I, you know, I remember, like I was saying just before the call, we used to have people laugh at this um, newspaper for toilet roll. So you would take your newspaper, you cut it into squares and you would use that. Um, and yeah, my grand and granddad, they still had until the past an out, you know, an outside toilet and such. Um, so we lived in that environment, but the things that I do remember from that is things were on a plate. You know, I, I got nice Christmas presents compared to my friends or some of my friends, but also, compared to my brother and sister because I was I was the youngest um but you know growing growing up in that time in that era it was about playing outside and basic things like just going to the fields and making dens or you know that we didn't have to worry about mobile phones xboxes or anything like that at all it was all basic stuff but I think the core of it was was we all had to help and work and not in a bad way, but, you know, wash the pots and do chores around the house. And when I, when I was growing up, I learned the value of money was, well, if you want that hi-fi, that Xbox, you know, Sega Mega Drive, yeah, you can have it, but you've got to buy it yourself. So I would do chores. I, I then got a job at a garage. I did paper rounds. I did activities to earn that money to pay me, and, and I had to pay mum and dad back. You know, they'd, they'd loan it me and I'd pay them back. So... You know, for me, it was it was a nice um, period. I don't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a painful time. There was nothing sort of we we weren't ever missing food or anything like that at all. Um, but it did set me up right in terms of right, okay, value money, save money, and make sure you work to do that. Don't you know? You don't take handouts. You don't sort of um, you know you you don't mess people around. You're always on issues. all those sort of things. So it set, set me up with really good values, uh, say, and, and the whole family as well um, around it. But yeah, I always remember it as being happy times, sunshiny and happy times. You know, it wasn't wasn't all like that. It was like, you know, I got my arse slapped for, I don't know, for pin coming home late and stuff like that. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, happy times and, and proper values, which I think is, is one positive thing about what's happening with the lockdown, which I've seen, is more people going out as families and spending time together, just going for walks, which before this all happened, you just didn't see that. You didn't see that. Whereas I remember when I was younger, we always spent sort of time as a family. We had dinner together. There was no sitting in front of the TV. You had dinner and socializing. You, you spoke together. On Sunday night, it was playing dominoes or cards um, all together as a family. So You have kids, right? I've got one, I was going to say one little boy, but he's 21. Okay, is he <laughs> yeah. nearby? Uh, he lives around 60 miles away. He lives on um, the other side of Manchester with his mum. Do you get to see him much and, and have those kind of family moments that you just described? Um, I do, well, I did, <laughs> unfortunately, before all this. Um, yeah, so, but not not as much. And the reason, yeah, the reason is, is... Um, a, he's got a job, he works full-time. B, he's got a girlfriend, and he discovered alcohol. Um, but also, he's he's just trained at the moment to join the armed police, the armed response unit. So, um, yeah, his weekends are taking up shooting guns and training for that and such. So I do get sporadic moments with him, but we don't – yeah, that family time um, is rare. But when we do get it, it's 
it's nice. Unfortunately, it's 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 it is too nice sometimes because I get to pick up the bill at Nando's and places like that. <laughs> is he a car guy like you? Uh, he's more of a bike guy. Um, he likes to do crazy fifty mile bike rides on his bike i mean he does like cars he comes to the car shows i mean he does help out around that but he's more of a he's more of a biker person um type of thing he's he's definitely the opposite of me in terms of exercise he's out go to the gym and being healthy um i go i go for walks and drive my cars what are you gonna pre-show you talked about having you obviously are a car guy you have an old uh mercedes camper that you're kind of fixing up to do what with um hopefully travel <laughs> post lockdown um yeah so it's a 1989 mercedes 811d which is like an old sort of snap-on truck um and i've kidded it out the idea or concept was to build it as like a, a movable office so it's fully set up with solar i can go off grid for about three weeks um it's got my fi um set up in there as well so the idea being when it's fully finished is that I've got an office area in there so I can do remote work. I can go up to the other sky or anywhere I want to be in fully be remote, not need water, not need to dump my waste or food or anything and just work and appreciate the environment um, around it. Um, yeah, hopefully, uh, probably with what's going to happen anyway, um, after lockdown, people won't want to travel. So yeah, get some nice time traveling around, seeing seeing a bit of the UK and actually sort of enjoying the country a little bit rather than just being in cities and being on planes. Because, yeah, you travel a lot for work, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before all this, um, I did I was sort of go over to the US quite a lot. I've got a client over there and traveling around the UK in general and Europe. Um, I mean, in previous roles, I used to be away five days a week um, on planes, trains, and automobiles. So mm. it was quite busy. But yeah, that, the idea behind the van was a bit more relaxing time. And like I say, I can just chill out, have some food, relax. Look, look at a lot. At work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's lovely where I, where I live now, but just nice to get a break from that um, and just be on the road just see different places but still have that ability to work properly that's rad Stuart I love this conversation man before I let you go can you tell us what makes like channel as a service great I mean just you know that little pitch you can give to our audience and give them some more insight into what your company is all about you is I mean you're a what solo you don't have any employees do you Thanks. No, no, thankfully, I don't have that pain. It's just me that I have to worry about. Um, yeah, so channel as a service, it's essentially, if you, it, I call it try before you hire. Um, so if you're a SaaS software company and you want to hire somebody in the channel, you, you'd be paying them a six-figure salary um, to get started. And they typically spend 12 to 18 months building out the program, the structure, process. You know, they're doing a lot of admin and testing in the market. So what I offer is rather than, than doing that and spending all that salary and then not getting your revenue and getting to the end of it. Um, people bring me in, they hire me. Um, I go and do some of that legwork, test the market, build a strategy, get them up and running, get them to a piece of revenue so that when they do the high, hire the expensive partner manager, the sales guy coming in, he's got something to take over. He can start driving revenue. You know, he can start to earn his salary um, around that. So yeah, try before your hire scheme, basically. Um, I drop in, go and do what I need to do over a couple of months, come back out, 
get some movement there um, and, and in some cases I'll sort of stay on as an interim partner manager and, and sort of help those companies moving forward around the revenue side until they find the right person at the right time at the right salary and such and I help them with that hiring position as well because um, in terms of skill sets or thinking indirect sales and the way you work with partners and approach it is totally different from direct sales and that's some of the biggest mistakes that SaaS companies do they try and force it onto a direct sales guy and it doesn't work so um i go and do that and like i say sort of drop in drop out go and enjoy it help them and uh and do that for a short period of time which is great i love it dude and then one more question if you could speak to one audience member who understands SaaS but doesn't necessarily hasn't taken that first step or is a little fearful of taking that first step of starting that SaaS company or doing something unique, what would you tell them? Um, in terms, I'd say just get on with it. <laughs> um, yeah. So if they're going to start a SaaS company, there's, there's loads of opportunities out there. Um, and like I say, with this sort of no code, low code type movement, you don't have to be a developer. There's so many tools that you can use to build uh, websites and get things going and get get a product out there. And especially now with with what's happening in the world, the opportunity to create community based um, services. So build an application, a software application that will help bring communities together or will help bring local restaurants and butchers together to deliver to your community so you've got a collective. There's all those sort of aspects. But I think, you know, don't be fearful. Go and test it. There's there's nothing wrong. I think the UK is sort of, the US is more embracing of this, but there's nothing wrong in failing and there's nothing wrong in in testing that market and doing it incorrectly because you're only here for so long you've only got so many days on this planet and making mistakes is how you learn when you're young so yeah just just get on with it and at least you can look back and say i did that wrong but you know i learned from it i did it i I, I didn't back away from it i love it Stuart. you hear that folks create something that's community-based and is a service and you'll make a million dollars according to Stuart. (laughs) thank you Stuart, for your time brother appreciate you (laughs) Hey, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. It's been great chatting today. Awesome, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Please, folks, remember, if you're a first-time listener, pull up that phone at the subscribe button. Sharing this episode is always appreciated. Rating it, five stars, commenting on it, all helps within the algorithm of iTunes and all these search engines that bring misfits and regions to the forefront of anybody searching for travel podcasting, entrepreneurs, digital nomads. That really helps me grow. And if you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do that in two ways. You can head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and purchase a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, or you can head over to Patreon backslash Misfits and Rejects, patreon.com, where fans of Misfits and Rejects can participate in supporting Misfits and Rejects through a monthly donation, any amount you want. It's all appreciated. Nothing is expected. And again, I just hope wherever you're listening to this, you find yourself feeling good, feeling happy, feeling hopeful. These episodes are possibly bringing you more joy, more inspiration, more focus, and maybe a creative new way of thinking about your current situation and directing positive energy into something new, something online, something that's going to create revenue streams in, in ways that were never imaginable to you before. And as always, I think you all are so very beautiful. I wish you all the best and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation where you're at and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new to live a different lifestyle that 
maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.